remain standing for the reading of the word. Reading out of Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. May God bless the reading of this word. You guys may be seated at this time. So many of you might have uh, Bibles that separate passages of text um, with thematically um, related or descriptive headings. Um, And I really like these Bibles because it's really easy for me to remember something when it's broken down into multiple components rather than when it's all uh, just an uninterrupted string of text. Uh, It's also really easy to have a devotional in one of these because you can just read one section under one passage and then reflect on it and then read one more the next day and it's broken up to where it's all um, relevant to a single reading. However, the downside is that these headings often act as a separation, a barrier between sections of text that really were intended to be read together. And I think that our text this morning is a good example of this. My Bible begins this passage with the heading, If your brother sins against you. And it takes us down to verse 20. And then it has a new section called The Parable of the Unforgiving Servant, which begins in verse 21 when Peter comes up and asks Jesus, How many times must we forgive our brother? Now, if you're like me and you read one section uh, per devotional, then you would read the first one, if your brother sins against you, and then the next day maybe read uh, the parable of the unforgiving servant. And so the effect is that it seems like two unrelated things. But the reality is that both are part of the same passage which speak about the reconciliation of brothers through forgiveness. See, taken separately, they seem harsh, 
right? The final mention of conflict in the first section is that the brother ends up being removed from the congregation. And then the final section of the unforgiving servant parable, the final conflict of that is that the first servant is thrown in jail. And then it has a warning that um, my heavenly father will do the same to each one of you if you do not forgive your brother. So it seems very harsh when you take them separately. But if you read them together, it's much easier to see how it's really about reconciliation and about unity. It's after hearing Jesus speak about how to address sin in the church that Peter asks how often they ought to forgive a brother who has sinned against them. He's saying, what if there's someone in the church that we continue to have this problem with? What if uh, we go through this process and he repents and then it happens again? How many times should we let this person get away with sinning against us and we still forgive them? So when we read them correctly, it's much easier to see the focus that Jesus wants to highlight in this passage. And the first focus is that church discipline is fueled by love. Love is the entire guiding ethic beneath this entire set of instructions. And it's only when the love has been compromised that bad things happen, right? If you read the passage carefully, the contingency of the circumstances of uh, going to the next step in this list of instructions for church discipline, it all relies on the person who has sinned, not on the church leaders. At each step, he's given an option to listen and turn from that sin, listen and confess his sin and repent of it. At each time, the choice is his, and it's only when he chooses to refuse to listen that he gets removed from the congregation. However, a big stumbling block for people in this passage is the idea that we would ever kick anyone out of a church, right? That's so anti-cultural to where we live today. The idea that we would ever remove someone from a congregation is just unfathomable because the church is where we welcome everyone and everyone's welcome. And it doesn't matter if you're a sinner, you're welcome. And that's absolutely true. We emphasize these things for a very good reason. But in that light, it makes the idea that we would ever kick someone out of a church make the church look like harsh and bigoted and exclusive for ever even considering that idea. But I think if we see the idea of removing someone from a congregation, we're seeing it in the wrong way. See, I think in that image, we're imagining someone like begging, like, please, please, I just want to be here. I want to be here so bad. I want to be a part of your congregation. And we're like, get out! Like, you know, and they're like flying off the church steps. That's not the biblical image of what removing a person from a congregation looks like, right? See, if someone ever reaches the point where they're removed from a congregation, they've first been confronted by someone they've sinned against, and then that person goes to a couple of other people who he tells the whole case to, and an outside party comes together and they make a decision on what's actually happened. And then if he refuses to listen again, he's standing in front of the entire church, And if the entire church tells him he's wrong and he doesn't listen, it's kind of like if someone were to join a book club and he never participates, constantly distracting during all the discussions, never reads the books. And then one day he's just like, guys, I hate reading. Can we just talk about music today? Why'd you join a book club if you don't like reading? You know, a book club is a place where people who like reading come together. And the church is the same way. Any group of people 
that come and meet together, they typically affirm a set of values that they all assent to. And so the biblical image of someone who would ever be removed from a congregation is that someone who obviously does not agree with what the church agrees with. He does not agree with a very basic core value level. And so they are saying, I don't belong here. I don't want to be a part of this community. And then the second thing about this whole process, and I think this is the more important point, is that the text doesn't specifically say, kick him out of the church. Verse 17, it says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And this does mean removal from the body of Christ. Gentiles and tax collectors, um, they're not part of the body of Christ unless they repent and then they become part of the body of Christ. So what he's saying is removal from the congregation. But we often think that to treat someone as a Gentile and tax collector is to cut them off completely from our lives and turn away and throw them in with a category of people that we just never associate because you're the worst of the worst. You're the low of the low. Why would I ever talk to you? But we have to remember who's speaking here. Jesus is the one telling them to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so when we look at how Jesus treats Gentiles and tax collectors, it's a very different image. How did Jesus treat them? He loved them. He called them into service. Matthew, the author of this gospel, was a tax collector. Jesus engaged these people, engaged people who were not a part of the body, out of a desire to try and bring them into the body and unite them in loving relationships with other believers. And he even died to this purpose. Jesus loved Gentiles and tax collectors. So to treat someone as a Gentile and a tax collector, according to Christ's example, is to treat them with the utmost love and humility, wishing, hoping, praying that they would change their ways and submit to the loving lordship and grace of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus wants reconciliation. Jesus is concerned about protecting the unity of the church while maintaining a degree of holiness, uh, while trying to keep this unrepentant, conflict-driven sin out that would lead others into sin. But every time, he's given an opportunity to repent. If at any point the one who has sinned ever responds positively to this process, Jesus says, you have gained your brother. Simple as that. Notice here, it doesn't say if he listens and agrees to pay reparations. It doesn't say if he uh, listens and promises to make it up to you in the best way he knows how. It's just about repentance. It's a spiritual issue. And if he responds positively to this spiritual confrontation, then you've gained your brother and unity is preserved doesn't have to go any further than that. It's very simple. But how many times, Jesus, how many times must we forgive our brother? As many as seven times? Jesus says, no, not seven, but 77. And a lot of our first instincts when we're ever put in a position of conflict is just wait until 78 because it's, it's going to go down at 78. I'm going to get through 77, but believe you me, But this isn't the point. It's not the point. He's not just giving us a bigger number. He's saying like, okay, just really try and make it past 77 times. Because if they do it 78 times, they obviously, they're beyond help. We're supposed to continue to do this no matter what. No matter how many times they sin against us, we must forgive them. And the more you start to think about the reality of this, the more it seems absolutely ridiculous. Because our wisdom says, okay, 
if, like, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on, or switch that. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? And so it's about learning from your mistakes and not letting someone else do that same thing to you again because you've grown wiser and you've now learned something about that person that helps protect you against any future sin. But Jesus is saying, continue to do this. And he's as if in anticipation of uh, someone responding like this, someone thinking that this is absolutely ridiculous, he then gives us a parable of the servants. And what he's trying to tell us within this parable is that we must forgive others because we've been forgiven of so much more. I actually went uh, because the servant's debt, it's written in monetary currencies that we don't really understand. So I went and uh, Googled it, tallied it out. So a talent is um, it's a unit of weight measurement. And so they would usually describe talents as talents of gold or silver. So it's an amount of weight. One talent would have been roughly the equivalent of 20 years of labor. Okay? One denarius would have been one day's labor. So the first servant owes 10,000 talents. The second servant owes 100 denarii. And so the first servant owes 73 million days of work. 73 million days. That would be like billions of dollars. The second servant only owes 100 days of work. It's just a couple thousand grand. These sums are not comparable. The first servant's debt was absolutely unable to be repaid. There's no amount of work he could have done to ever repay that before he died. It's an incomprehensible magnitude, but the second servant's debt was laughably smaller. So how could we possibly compare the debt of our brother against us when we have a debt against our father, who is, which is so much greater? Our debt is incomprehensibly bigger against God than any one brother could ever do to us. This is what Jesus is saying. The very facts that we're in the church right now is because of grace. On the way in the door... We were allowed in here because God has forgiven us of everything. God's already repaid our debt. Forgiveness thus ought to be a precedent for our entire Christian lives. It ought to set the standard for how we live. We forgive because we've been forgiven. So how can we continue to forgive one of our brothers if they continue to sin against us over and over and over again? By realizing that they could never ever accumulate the amount of debt that we once owed God. Okay, Evan. Logically, this checks out. It's a good argument. I think it's biblically sound. Did your research? Did your homework? But after a certain point, you know, isn't there a time, like, let's be real? Isn't there a time when, like, he's, he's done this five times in a row? Like, how often are you going to let yourself be fooled? Can we actually practice this ethic and live it out in this world, it just doesn't seem wise. To which I respond, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
God is redefining our ethic. You see, the wisdom of the world would lead us to ask Jesus, are you not the Son of God? Why do you let yourself be crucified like some common thief? If you are the Son of God, save yourself. Take yourself down from the cross. Show me your power. Why would you willingly do this? But Jesus, like a weak fool, continued to hang. But church, I promise you, in that moment, he was stronger and wiser than we could ever possibly fathom. So the harder it is for us to forgive someone else for whatever they've done against us, the more we should recognize the depth of our own forgiveness and what it costs the one who actually had to pay that debt. If there's a grudge you just simply don't want to let go of, it's this anger, it's this, bitter, this bitterness that you just, you, it, it consumes you and you can't seem to let go of it, I want you to imagine walking up to Jesus while he's still on the cross, wounds still bleeding, beginning to suffocate as he's hanging there because he can't support himself. And I want you to try to explain to him why you can't let go of the grudge that you bear against your brother. I hope it's clear by now that this passage about church discipline is not about hate. It's not about exclusivity. It's not about um, if someone's bad enough, you can kick them out of your church because we want the church to be full of good people. It's a spiritual issue that focuses on the unity of the church while protecting it from an infection of conflict-oriented, unrepentant sin that would poison the whole body. What's really cool is where we see moments where this forgiveness and this process of reconciliation actually um, produces a really beautiful result. I actually had one of these experiences in my own life. Um, Back in the beginning of my college days, I dated a girl good start to every conflict story um so I got into this relationship and you know I was young like just starting uh in college just starting to learn what it means to be an adult and out of my dad's house and um just we just weren't on the same page you know and it ended up blowing up in my face um a lot of relationships just do this I think that's why um relationships like they're they're really good form of sanctification um so I felt hurt. I felt really hurt. I'd felt more hurt at that time of my life than I had ever felt before, and I didn't really know how to deal with this anger, with this bitterness. It, like, really started to consume my thoughts. I would go into work the next day just trying not to get fired because I was afraid I would just blow up on someone. It really, really impacted every aspect of my life. So as I was reflecting on this, the thing is you can't really escape this sort of thing. It, it kind of follows you everywhere. And so you're constantly aware of it. And so I began to reflect on this. And the more I reflected, the more that God began to change my heart. The more that he began to show me that I was actually sinful. You see, I had made this girl an idol in my life. I had begun to worship her instead of God. And so when things crashed, I felt this crazy void. And I had to blame someone for that void. And so I realized there was a direct correlation between the depth of my anger and the depth of my sin. So I prayed for forgiveness for myself before God and in my heart towards the girl that I had dated. And as the weeks passed, God began to change her too. And he began to work a process of healing that brought us really um, back into a point where we could actually become friends. Her name was Amy Wethington, and two years later I married her. 
when we wholeheartedly embrace this ethic of forgiveness, you would be surprised of how capable God is of taking something that's utterly broken and turning it into something that's beautiful. God has the power to do that. So my last point about forgiveness is that it is truly, it's divine. And to really understand uh, what I mean by that, I'm going to take the scope beyond what uh, the passage I read and kind of go to look at forgiveness in a more general sense, in the more holistic sense of how the, the New Testament teaches us to forgive. You see, Jesus didn't just say, forgive our brothers. He didn't just say, forgive the people who exist in community with us. He said we ought to love our enemies, right? When his disciples asked him how to pray, part of the prayer that he demonstrated for them was, Father, forgive me my sins as I forgive those who sin against me. So this idea of forgiveness expands to everyone, expands to people outside of the church. The problem is our world is messed up. People do terrible, sickening things. People murder, people rape, people commit terrible, racially charged hate crimes. These things happen on a regular basis. Surely it's no longer as simple as the theologically correct answer of just loving and forgiving my enemies because God loved and forgave me. Surely it's not that simple. Surely there's something else. How can we actually forgive these atrocities? How do I actually do that? And I've never had to go through anything like that. And so I'm not speaking from experience here, but I I began to reflect and I was thinking really hard on this problem to see, like, God, show me, like, what is the answer? And I think what he showed me is that the answer is still the same. You see, in situations like that, I don't think it's a head problem. I don't think there's something that you can learn that um, you didn't know before that will actually fix it and make it easier to do it. I think the problem relies in the lack of power to apply what's obvious. But that power can only come from looking at one who did have to forgive atrocities of that magnitude. You see, we hear this story so often that unfortunately becomes commonplace to our ears. And it doesn't really mean a whole lot. It doesn't really affect us emotionally a whole lot. But guys, Jesus was brutally murdered. Like that happened. He was tortured. And he was innocent. He didn't deserve it. He is more innocent than any victim of today's crimes. More innocent than any victim ever. If I were to retell this story, but place it in in like a modern context, change the names, change some of the minor details, to, to tell you the same story, but make it sound like a new story, we would all be appalled. But even as Jesus hung on the cross, he looks at the ones murdering him and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There is incredible power in that. They are literally killing him. And as he is dying with his last breaths, he is praying for their forgiveness, asking his father to forgive them because they're ignorant. Jesus is the perfect example of the strength to forgive in the face of atrocity. And really, this does have the power to guide us through whatever we might experience in life. 
I'm going to invite the band back up as um, we begin to draw to a close. But um, before, before we finish, in prepping for this sermon, I, I read some incredible stories about forgiveness and um, people being able to find that in the wake of absolutely heart-wrenching tragedies, finding strength to forgive in light of it through the power of Christ and his Holy Spirit. There was one man who ended up losing his pregnant wife because another man fell asleep behind the wheel and ended up hitting her with his car. But through the power of Christ, he was able to forgive the driver. You see, he was a pastor, and he knew that that was the time to practice what he preached. And so he began to pray, and he found the strength to forgive the driver. The driver was facing serious jail time, and the man who lost his wife was the one that pleaded for a lesser verdict. He asked for him to not go to jail, to just get community service, and then um, he ended up chasing him down later on to create a relationship, to tell this man that he forgives him. And they ended up having a relationship, a very close friendship, both of their families, for years. There was another woman who went camping with her family um, and woke up one morning and saw that her daughter had been kidnapped. And while she's wrestling with this anger, while she's wrestling with these feelings of, she's a Christian woman, but she's feeling, I could literally kill the man that took my daughter. I w- I've never considered killing someone else, but I've, I've reached that point. It gets real. This anger just really consumes. But she began to wrestle with God. She took all of her concerns to God, and God showed her, I don't want you to feel this way. And so she began to pray as the days turned into weeks and the weeks turned into months for the strength to find forgiveness, to find something humane in the one who took her daughter, and to be able to sympathize with him. And then a year later, she found out that her daughter's captor had ended up killing both the child and himself. And in that moment, she said that she felt not only lost for her daughter, but she truly felt saddened for the loss of the man who had gone so wrong. God gave her the ability to empathize with the man who took her daughter. She began traveling around the country, preaching about forgiveness and telling her story to those who might need to hear that. She later befriended the man's mother talking about how her son was growing up as a child, looked at him as a kindergarten boy, and found sympathy for him, and they visited their children's graves together. See, the world is harsh. Things happen that are unfathomable. But God is not distant from those things. God exists everywhere. And God is able to meet you anywhere. You see, the man who lost his wife, the woman who lost her daughter, Jesus most of all, they all understood that when something happens that requires forgiveness, the problem is never just surface level. It's spiritual. Whenever someone commits a terrible crime, it's evident there there are dark spiritual forces at work in that person's life. And if we let ourselves become overcome with rage— we allow those same dark forces a chance to enter into our lives and destroy us. The woman who lost her daughter said, if you remain vindictive, 
you give the offender another victim. Anger, hatred, and resentment would have taken my life as surely as my daughter's was taken. This is what Satan wants. He wants us to destroy each other. He wants to separate us and isolate us in our anger and bitterness. He wants to lead us as far away from the light of God as he can possibly get us. And one of the ways he most effectively does this is keeping us from the, gra- from the grace of God that exists in forgiveness. When Jesus came into the world, he came to thwart this darkness, and he died to do so. By forgiving us of our immeasurable debt, he released Satan's hold on us and enabled us to exist in the light. See, forgiveness is just as much about both parties as it is about any one of them. It's a, it's a process that heals everyone involved. It is truly a divine thing. When you start to look at experiences like this, logic doesn't explain it. Experience doesn't explain it. There's nothing that this world can offer that can explain it. Only the presence of A divine being of God can explain how these things can happen. And by participating in that action of forgiveness, whatever end of the spectrum it may be, whether it's the most trivial of things or whether it's the most heinous of crimes, we participate in God's very own purpose for the world, which is to set the captives free and lead people to experience the glory of the presence of God. Let's pray together. Father, first of all, we'd like to thank you for being so present in this world. A lot of times when we look at examples of evil, examples of pain and suffering, it's easy to think that there's no way you could exist and allow this to happen. But God, we know that you answered that through the cross that we should never consider suffering without first considering your own suffering. God, we know that you're present in this place right now, just as you're present everywhere, all the time, and that in your name there is truly power to grow, to be more like you, to have divine experiences because we're participating in your acts of divinity. Father, we thank you for the blessing of Jesus Christ, for forgiving us of our immeasurable debt and allowing us an opportunity to come into your presence, unblemished. Father, we pray for anyone in this room, in this city, in this country, in this world that's experiencing anger and bitterness. We pray against any power of Satan that would keep them in that and pray that you would give them the strength to forgive and feel the liberation from all of Satan's powers and forces that would try and keep them in bondage. We praise you for setting us free and for offering us an alternative, for giving us new life and a chance to live this new life for eternity. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen.